0: Hello and welcome. I am Dan.
1: I am Jacob. I'm Gorchin.
0: And we are the. Who are we? Wow. We're the
1: historical miniature wargamers podcast, aren't we? See, I think so. This is why we're you We talk don't about bold action sometimes. Yeah,
0: yeah. This is um, why you don't stay up late the night before. <laughs> so. so this will
1: be episode seven um, of our podcast, um, and we're going to be talking about the. Uh, follow-up event for Varsity, three-event campaign in, in this episode. Um, but first off, I just want to see how you guys have been in the last few weeks. What have you been working on for hobby and that kind of thing? What have you been uh, painting up, gorchen
2: Yeah, so I got um, really inspired by Iron Signet. Uh, oh, yeah. It's a painting event. That the submissions are early October. Um, they're actually doing a really interesting um, painting scoring series uh, structure that they said is actually quite common, but it's sort of the first I've heard of it. Yep. What they're doing is, is they're rather than providing a, uh, a prize for first, second, and third, or gold, silver, and bronze, what they're doing is they're assessing all of the submissions and deciding what category each submission falls into, whether that's uh, gold, silver, or bronze, and they will provide that level of prize to every submission in that category. So if there's 25 submissions and 19 of them are, they think the judges decide is gold standard, all 19 will win the mm-hmm. gold prize. And I think that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, Iron Signet split across, uh, if I remember correctly, people who have won painting competitions before, people who haven't, and under 15s. Yep. Um, but I would encourage you that this is the the best place to get involved in. In sort of scoring a or, or painting tournament, because of this, I actually didn't find it intimidating. Sort of thinking mm-hmm. about raising yeah. my hand for yeah. submission, because I know that I'm going to be graded fairly, um, and that you know if I'm going to be up against a whole bunch of guys who've won painting competitions before, my work's actually going to be in a separate category to that. Yeah. So okay. that and that's that was really welcoming for me, and I think mm-hmm. having also seen that the judging panel, uh, if I remember correctly, is a Golden Demon winner. Um, two scale model experts, uh, okay. and and also I think a, uh, an expert artist. I've I've, I've forgotten yeah. who they are and their exact credentials, but I remember looking at that and feeling confident that that my submission was actually going to yeah. be judged fairly by appropriate experts. So
1: you're doing mm. a World War II figure for this event? Yeah, I've uh, got
2: a I've got an M10 tank destroyer, yeah. uh, and I'm sort of taking more of a scale modeling approach to to it's it's a Warlord bolt action kit in 156. I think it's an Italieri sculpt. Yeah, um, but you know I'm. Uh, I've just spent the f- last couple of weeks working on construction techniques, so I've got different armor textures, I've got cast textures, I've mm. gouged out some welds, I've, I've I've modeled some weld beads on it, so I'm really just going to go the whole hog. I'm um, looking forward to start painting it because that's a little bit more comfort zone for me, but yeah. this has actually been really fun for me.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Um, Yeah, I haven't Quite got into what Iron Signet is. Do you know where it's being hosted? I think that's that Northern of... Boards. That's yeah, doing yeah, it. Yeah, yes. yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. That sounds about right. Super excited. Um, and just vaguely, if you have any idea, is there an
2: entry cost? I think it's five dollars per submission. Okay, and you're not right. limited to your number of
0: submissions. Yeah, yeah. I think so. And um, they've got a they've got a Facebook site. Uh, yeah, which yeah, we can, definitely. We'll link. Yeah, we'll I can't remember off link. the top of my head, yeah. but we can link yeah. it in the in the description. And it's got all the information. Um, yeah. Really cool idea. Really, really cool idea. Um, and they've got one of the graphics they've got is um, the signet rings that um, I believe yeah. that they're yeah. real and that they've just yeah. got those yeah. designed and set yeah, up yeah, um, yeah. as part of the, the prize pool and stuff. Um, and they look, they look really good yeah, um, yeah. there's a of, lot of clout on that ring I was going to say <laughs> my, my ring's got a bit of clout but theirs is theirs is quite yeah. quite, quite good no that's um, really
1: cool but um, yeah uh, Gorchin's talking about some a- uh, extra techniques he's doing on the modelling side yep. which is just something that we don't really go to that level of detail for for wargaming itself so it's really cool to see we'll throw up some photos of what you've been working on mm. um, myself I've got heavy into feudal Japan at the moment so Working on quite a few terrain tiles, some terrain pieces, and... There's uh, rumours that you've
0: bought all the Japanese that exist in Perth.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I went to Tactics and bought every Warlord kit that they had. Uh, They've restocked all of them, which was really unexpected, because, like, this isn't particularly... So Test of Honor is is a game that was owned by Warlord at one point. Version 2 is now with the original developer who's moved offside to Warlord. Um, It has a lot of similarities to bolt action. Um, There are activation mechanics that are very similar. Mm. Um, But it's not the most popular thing out there. I might be one of the few in Perth that is trying to spearhead this thing. Um, So I bought all these old kits. I've restocked them. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I think tactics is, is... slowly decided okay there's some interest something's happening someone's bought everything (laughs) we need to get these again but um, yeah I have uh, TT Combat uh, has Mm a geisha house which is this this huge terrain piece it's it's probably a little bit over a foot either side of the house Uh, the 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 house detaches the roof and then you've got the internals in there as well Uh, I went to town on this thing, so like it had because you got bo- like paintings
0: and stuff that you yeah, put in there and all sorts yeah. right?
1: <laughs> uh, uh, there were floorboards. So I was like, I don't want to paint floorboards. I'm going to put in like the this weird carpety kind of stuff that they have in Japan. I don't know how you say it. It's it's there's a word that starts with T, but it's like t- it's some kind of mat that okay. they oh. would that they would tar mat. That that's the one. It's a tar what I
0: mean, well, we're being told by that a cameraman. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thanks, cameraman. <laughs> so, I made, made some of that, and then yeah, uh, I also wanted the internals to look kind of nice. And all I did was just print off black and white Japanese paintings from the era and pretty much all the way around. Um, That's inside great idea. inside it in there, yeah, it looks and awesome. And then, um, just some contrast paints that you know they're, they're very translucent, they're kind of like a wash. So that would simulate a um, watercolour painting, which is what they would have been. Mm. Well, appear to look like or whatever. Um, So, yeah, just dabbing random colours here and there and then made that kind of look interesting. Um, And then I've gone for snow for everything. So... um, (laughs) Your 148 in, Tactics was yeah, there as well? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, my 148 Tactics stuff was came out as all Ardennes-themed. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I've mastered the art of uh, getting it off-white and dry brushing it onto <laughs> figures and terrain, and it looks cool. So um, I ended up doing that for the Japan stuff, which is going to be different to most of the things out there. So if mm, you have definitely. a look at the Test of Honor Facebook group, everything is a summer theme or an autumn. Most people want... Um, whatever seasonable part of Japan has cherry blossoms, which unfortunately yeah. Yeah. isn't winter. Yeah. Um, well, they're Yeah, they're not in bloom. going to
2: say cherry blossoms, sort of the big thing when you <laughs> yeah. think samurai, you think yeah. feudal yeah. Japan. Yeah. You've got the armor, you've obviously got the swords. A lot yeah. of people are thinking cherry blossoms. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: so that, that, that that's a lot of the terrain out there. But mine's going to be a little bit different. But it turns Good. out that um, the winter campaign in feudal Japan is. Stretched over uh, one period in history that moves shifts from the Sengoku period, which is the Warring States, which is samurais in armor fighting each other, and dozens and dozens of clans all being intermixed, to the Edo period where samurai stop being the focal point of the society right. and don't. Uh, it, it is more uh, government that is important, and wars don't happen. So samurai are all of a sudden. Not a important or valued member of society, so this winter battle happens right at the point that history changes into the Edo period. So wow. it is it is this um, uh, clan that is in charge of of Japan that loses that all the other clans disintegrate post. Mm. Yeah, okay. So it ends up being something that's actually quite important in history.
0: So you're, you're trying to, just to get it right, you're trying to spearhead starting a new system with the end of the little era of the system you're starting. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah.
1: But uh, I, I, I anticipate that, um, you know, the uh, sort of uh, necessity for, for finalizing this combat, yeah. and it, yeah. it's literally every clan in Japan versus one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so right. so uh, it you know the the stakes are really high yeah
2: and the entry points really great you know if you're if you're somebody who's not sort of that into the history this yeah. will give you an excellent opportunity to learn about the different clients yeah. if you're somebody who's more sort of creatively oriented you'll be looking for what's a paint scheme that I like yeah and that's a that's the great thing about wargaming as a tool to sort of teach or convey histories yeah. because you'll see something you know, quote, unquote, cool or something that catches your eye and you might go and read about it. So I think that's actually yeah. a really good place to start.
0: Ironically, at the tail end of everything, but I think it's a, <laughs> it's a really
2: good place to start. I,
0: I may mock, but I have actually played Test of Honor um, yeah. and that game is extremely good fun. Um, yeah. It's really, really well done. A very, uh, I played version one, a little bit of version yeah. two, um, and very, very uh, cinematic style of gameplay yeah. yeah, and definitely. the way that you set things up. Um and I'll, I'll never let Rory leave him down. When he when he taught me how to play the game, um, my Warlord that had the Asari Spear basically had his Warlord pinned to the ground oh, for about no. four or five turns. <laughs> he would get up, and I'd just shove him back down. He would get up, and I'd just shove him back down.
1: So I've bought one of every kit Warlord used to have with the intention that I would have enough figures for at least four players. I yeah. may actually yeah. have five. Who knows? But you probably um, do. You're probably
0: pretty close to five.
1: Uh, so... It's a twenty-four point army is the the standard army that you would have. That may be up to maximum of twelve figures. Yeah. So so you usually got a, a character, two or three of them, and then some infantry troops. Some supporting as well. troops, yeah. Um, so yeah, I've gone to town on the terrain side, and now I'm starting the painting. But the painting's actually interesting because I just painted a figure last night. Um, I've been a little bit stuck with this Japanese stuff because. On looking at a lot of the inspirational things that people have painted, people paint typically um, clans in a particular colour. Okay. So, so they would think that this clan would have a red armour, this clan would have a blue, and this yeah, would be okay. yellow. That's not true. So, yeah, um, okay. everybody has whatever the hell they've got. Yeah, yeah, okay. So the the thing that unifies them is this this banner that they have on the ba- yeah. on their back that has their clan logo. Yeah. And, yeah, okay. So you have typically armor is black or, yeah. or a shade of brown. Yep. And they may have colored clothing underneath, but that denotes more so their family rather than yeah. their clan. Yes. Yeah. Um, so really a lot of them would have brown, white, tan colored robes underneath and then this black armor. So I was a little bit intimidated at first because I was like, I want to make four clans worth of guys, yeah. two that would be typically fighting with each other so I can support 2v2 games. Yep. Yep. But it turns out that uh, you would have a colour variety within the force regardless. Yeah, yep. And the, you would only have that banner that would unify them anyway.
2: Yep. Um, it's, it's actually a really interesting parallel to European history. Yep. Um, one of the things that's come out recent decades... Uh, about medieval armor was, a, you know, ever, all of the armor sets that we've collected so far bar some very rare ones like King Henry VIII's, are all this polished steel. Yeah. That was actually a um, a, a museum art collection fashion trend that yes. happened for people preserving the armor. The actual armor when it was being worn was all painted individually to each individual owner's armor. Okay. So when you think about, a, you know, a group of knights arrayed on a battlefield, y- your typical head would be knight in charming armor, they've all got polished steel. In reality, yeah. they've all got unique custom artworks mm. and all custom different colors. Mm. So, and that was true in, in medieval yeah. Europe as well. And it sounds like it was also yeah. true yeah. in Japan. Yeah. And it yeah. makes sense. It does make sense. Armor is is horrendously expensive. Yeah. I, I know this for the European guys, you know, these people weren't, you know, high, high middle class. These were the... The Bezos and the Bill Gates of medieval Europe. These were the guys in knights in shining shining armor, and it will make sense that it will have custom pieces. Some of them have like dragons and demons yeah, tattoo, yeah, uh, sorry, yeah. painted on their helmets. And honestly, if I had a suit of armor and I was going to the battle, I'd be painting a demon face on my suit. On my yeah, yeah. And you see the same parallels in feudal Japan as well, of course, yeah, with, the, yeah. with the masks. Yep. And I found that their armor variation is really interesting. But again, it makes a lot of sense. It does.
1: But it um, does. yeah, so I, I, I was a little bit intimidated because I have not painted anything like this. But researching it further and further, it's like, okay, you have complete creative freedom. Just go nuts and paint, <laughs> paint whatever you think really looks cool. And that's actually fine. Fantastic. Yeah. So um, that's all about tests. We'll get into that yeah. maybe in a future episode when I've played the game a few times. But um, I thought we might just talk about what else is going on in Perth.
0: Yeah. So um, my winter Bulgarians are still going. Oh that's right. About, <laughs> so that's, that's about all we need year. to say <laughs> yeah. for that, and we'll move on. Um, so I, I guess one of the things that's popped up, um, you know, within within Perth that we've seen that uh, we've commented on. Um, was was one of the posts that was put up on the, on the Bolt Action group. Was um, oh, was that Akhtar's? Yeah, yeah, it was Akhtar's yeah, one. Yeah. He saw a post and put a post up. Yeah. And there was just some interesting commentary and we wanted to reflect on what Perth is currently doing to align with what our comments say, to, just yeah. to give a yeah. bit more context so around that. F-
2: for those of you who are not aware, the, the post was, I'll, I'll just quote it here. This is from Akhtar. Uh, he says, I saw an interesting post about how the heyday of Bolt Action events not tournaments is behind us i know that there has been a fairly significant change in the guard with a fair few prominent members of this community now either doing less or not doing bolt action at all so uh, my question that is Actas, is how do we get those players back into the community and what has changed to have them leave and so that that actually stirred on um, a very fantastic very varied and very intense discussion i think it's up to 300 posts now it was about not even a Um, week old I think
1: so just to give some context to people who don't know who ACTA is um, this is we're we're talking about a post from the Bolt Action Australia New Zealand uh, community group which is you know one of the biggest out there, has quite a few posts, and Actar is basically the equivalent of Dan in Tasmania, right? The TO for Tasmania, it's, setting it's, up a lot of events. I'd
0: probably actually say that Dan is the equivalent of okay. Actar yeah, for right. Tasmania. Okay. Um, he was there first, and of he's course, helped me out with quite a few different one, things. Um, we have very similar um, player bases and, 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 and play styles, and certainly the events that we design. A lot of what I was designing, and when I was reaching out and checking a few things with Actar actors, like oh, that looks very similar to what we do at this end of the world. Um, and so, uh, so, hi, actor. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's just, he, he brought brings up a very interesting point. It's it's important, I guess, to for each community and group of gamers, wh- whatever game system it is, whatever you're playing, um, sometimes it is important just to take a step back and reflect on why you're playing, um, what's working for you, what isn't. Um, is it the right game system for you? Uh, do Is is it a point where you need to move forward? Do you need new people involved? All these sorts of questions that come into it. And a lot of those questions are things that have come out of this 300 post discussion, um, which, uh, yeah, which is has been quite interesting to see perspective internationally and nationally across what this looks like. Um, and importantly, as Gorchin pointed out by reading back the post and why we did that, is this specifically is about historical or narrative-driven events, not what would be considered uh, a typical tournament, which is a ranking, a seeded ranking, um, bring your A-game list. Your your top places are going to be one, two, three.
2: What CanCon sort of became, it became sort of the, the yes. national yeah. Grand
0: Prix. That's right. Yeah, yep. yep. Um, and so we just wanted to reflect on what's happening well with Perth because over, over the last three years, um, three and a bit years now, we've gone from our first narrative event it wasn't really a tournament because it had 10 people in it and so you know most people wouldn't want to call anything less than sort of 16 people a proper tournament in inverted yeah. commas um in terms of what what is colloquially known as a tournament here in, in in australia um but from 10 guys and i, I worked with the community to get an idea of what well, is is there a desire and an intent to have more of this and mm-hmm. built upon it and built upon it and now we can pretty reliably get for bolt action events anywhere between twenty to twenty-four people, and they're not always the same people. So that's yeah. quite a healthy community, I guess, from our point of view. I think we've got about um, sixty to eighty people that are interested across the pages that regularly interact with us, which is um, mm. yeah, that, that's that's really good. But I guess some of the reasons as to why that's the case, um, we've mentioned before on this on this podcast that we have a community that self-regulates really well uh, in terms of how they build lists and how they play games. Um, And so before we go into any of the other things that we think makes a difference, um, that's the core of it. The Perth Mm -hmm. community deliberately choosing to maintain a, a good amount of self-regulation on how they play games. Um, Without that, none of the other things actually matter. None of the other Mm. things um, are going to make enough of a difference. Um, but when we, when we do look at what we're trying to implement, we have varied points limits. We have varied mission types. We have uh, a varying number of board and terrain setups in Perth. We're, we're quite lucky, actually. We've yep. got quite a few amazing setups. Um, and we try really, really hard where we can not to have all the tables be explicitly set up in such a way that they're exactly the same Mm -hmm. um, or close to the same. Or symmetrical. Or symmetrical. So the idea there is um, the battlefields that we play on, that we try to set up, would be largely historically accurate to what, a setup might look mm-hmm. like in most cases. So, or at least plausible. Or at least plausible, yeah. right? So Expected. And expected. Yeah. And so that means that we've had some pretty interesting, like we've had an airfield table at one point set up where you were fighting over a hangar and that board deliberately was lopsided with the airfield on one, uh, essentially on one side because of the pieces that went together. And every single player that played on that board loved it, even though it was technically set up in a disadvantageous way for one of the missions. Um, but it, but it, that we've got several instances like that across the board of our terrain types, and you know it's a case of like, well, you're coming to play a board game, we're going to give you a good game, but we do want you to have you know feel like your player ability counts. Otherwise, if everyone's just going to play the same thing, why yeah. come to an event? I guess yeah. is the question yeah. that yeah. we raise, right? So um, so we try and do a little bit of those things. Mission design is is, uh, and most tos and event organizers would agree. Mission design is. Absolutely critical because if you do something that is uh, either unbalanced or seen to be uh, restricting or yeah. uh, or seen to be in some way forcing the outcomes before you've played or even sometimes uh, you might be designing an event specifically to restrict a type of list but then the players that would normally bring that type of list don't come. Yeah. you got to yeah. be aware of that yeah. aspect yeah, as well. True. Um, but we've got quite a good mix of blend here. I'm, I'm always looking for new missions and trying to, you know, find new ways to do things. Uh, and the other thing that probably what separates us um, and we are in the, I guess the, still just coming out of the infancy of us starting up again, but we have a very strong um, community feedback loop. Yeah. Uh, so my, my, even though we've got our different separate clubs, there's, there's four clubs in Perth currently that I, I would say, run or mainstream in some way, shape or form bolt action mm-hmm. uh, bolt action events and I'm linked in with basically most of those or mm-hmm. know the person who's linked in with those and we try very, very hard um, it's not perfect but we try very, very hard to be communicating about what the feedback was from events what did the players like what did they not like what are the players asking for what What felt over the top like if someone bought a list that we thought was okay and then someone went against it and went, oh, I just... It felt like I was hemmed in, I couldn't do anything and I was just hit by seven multi-launches and it just sucked. Um, We we try really hard to to get that communication through because without knowing what the players are actually feeling and wanting to do, you're always viewing it through your own lens. You're you're always, always viewing it through your own lens about, no, but I like to play games like this, so should everyone. And that's not always the best decision making. Um, So we've got that feedback loop which really helps to try and you know, and, and to be honest, the post that went up, that's actually something that you know, it was a prime opportunity for us to have a feedback loop within yeah. the community at large. And I do feel that that's what has happened.
2: Yeah, um, yeah. so there were, some, there were a lot of sort of very sweeping generalizations. Um, mm-hmm. And I think thats uh, uh, it's quite natural in an in- internet discussion. A lot of people, yeah. um, and as you say, if you're not exposed to a lot of different viewpoints, um, that's something that comes out naturally. You know, yeah. you, if, if, you, if you and your close group of friends will continuously go to competitive tournament events and you only sort of really communicate with each other, you're going to, over time, sort of coalesce into having the same set of, yeah. of opinions and viewpoints, and they're perfectly valid. There's absolutely yeah. nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But the important thing to remember is that, is that what is true for that scene and that group of people and, and that chain of events mm. doesn't necessarily uh, is not necessarily true for other events and other groups of people and other scenes. And I think one of the things that, that I sort of inferred reading through the comments and trying to get a handle on what the community was saying, and specifically Akhtar's question about what had happened to, to, yeah. the, to, the, to the non-tournament players effectively. I think for me, my sort of position is that bolt action strength is that it's not a pure history and that yeah. it's not a pure competitive uh, war game. Its, its strength is the fact that it's, for me, a very healthy and a very great mix of both. Mm-hmm. Depending on what you wanted to experience, both of those things are in there. And I think that uh, rubs some people the wrong way. And, and some people have gone to chain of command because the platoon yeah. structures are different for each nation. There's no points cost. It's just a platoon. And the mm-hmm. balancing comes in your support options. And that's a fantastic idea. That's a fantastic system. Mm. But, of course nobody hosts chain of command tournaments you you don't do it yeah just because the game's not really built around that and that's and that's i think that's where a lot of that sort of guard changeover has occurred is Mm -hmm. that people have gone well if i want something more purely competitive i'll go to something more purely competitive rather than staying in sort of the competitive bolt action scene and go uh i don't want to run um a more historical thing of bolt action because it's not really like perfectly historical. A lot of the, a lot of the rules are in there are more about myths and propagandas and yep. then it is yeah, about definitely. sort of actual history yep. and the you know, platoon structures aren't different, um, the rank structures aren't different and, and all of the weapons operate the same when they don't and a lot of that sort of, a lot of that minutiaes is not in bolt action, which is a good thing. Yeah, It yeah. makes the game fun. It makes it great to play. It makes it much more easier to balance. And, and approachable. Uh, exactly. It, 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 yeah. is, it
1: is probably the best gateway into learning about a war game, yes. and in particular in a, in a historical war game. I think Warlord has done a fantastic job with making this easy for people to get yeah. involved in. And, you know, if, if you can look at it from two different ways because you, you may be... The player... Well, three, I guess. You may be the player that's happy with the mixed, being that I like a bit of historical, I like a bit of gameplay, and, and this is the perfect balance for me. Then you got the two others that I want all historical or I want all competitive. And you can use that to branch off into those things. So that, 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 That's not wrong.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: But I think
2: the... It's also a great crossroads for all of those players to meet. Yeah, yes.
1: yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, and a great framework to... Um, for any kind of community rule set on top of to act, to end up pushing in either of those fashions. So, you know, it, you, you, you can have a competitive variant of bolt action and you could have a more narrative variant of bolt action and it's a great framework to do both of those in.
0: Yeah. And I think, um, you know, and, and I guess more to, to Akhtar's point about, you know, the, the changing of the guard and, and, you know, we have had... Uh, and, you know, I certainly want to acknowledge that we have had some previous um, Bolt Action greats who have run some really good events. You know, um, a classic is a Cambridge Duval, which was, you know, they've had, had, it's like, I think it's over 100 players wow. at, um, which held the record wow. for quite a while as, as the largest Bolt Action event that had run for a bit. There was a lot of effort in getting it to that point. Um, you know, and so, um, and, and I know that, the, the I mean, I can't even imagine the TO effort of, of oh, trying yeah. to pull, pull yeah. that together. So um, so kudos. But um but I also know that at some point, at somewhere, um, and I know because this happened with me with other systems, you, you will reach a point where I don't find it as much value in that system anymore. Yeah, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean the system's bad. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't mean the system's broken. It doesn't mean, well, actually, it could mean the system's broken. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't mean that the system is is dead in the water, uh, so to speak. It simply means that for me as a Definitely player, yeah, for me as a player, um, you know, I've now reached my. What, what I wanted to achieve with it I've got my value out of it I'm ready for something new and so the focus is I guess within that change over the guard for me when I I had to essentially start something brand new in Perth um, we yeah. had our we had our, our old guard um, veterans who they weren't interested necessarily in the second edition and picking that up yeah um, and the first edition events when the second edition came in essentially sort of died off they didn't have as much support to keep going and that's largely because the Perth scene went and picked up a whole bunch of other stuff by the way we still have a thriving 40k scene that's gone yeah, on, massive you know yeah. so it's, it's it's huge in that space so we're going to uh, move on through to other events that we've got coming up specifically within Perth um, and probably one of the biggest ones that is coming up is the culmination of varsity um, but we also have I guess the recap of the Wings of Glory event scramble which we <laughs> yep, just yeah. had
1: Fantastic. Yes,
2: yeah, so that was that was event two
0: of Varsity. Yeah. Uh, what
2: I wanted to capture there was the air battle that occurred uh, Roughly a week, maybe two weeks prior to the actual invasion mm-hmm. And so the Luftwaffe at this point was pretty much on its last legs um, it suffered massive uh, material losses mm-hmm. uh, in the Battle of Bulge, um, which happened obviously the yeah. winter just before this uh, before the March 45 period and so the Luftwaffe was more or less out of action for this point. And they weren't strategically or operationally, they were never in a position to have air superiority by the time the invasion of Europe began. However, what they were looking for achieving was local superiority. So having yep. a, having a concentration of fighters in a particular area to basically yeah. encourage and support an attack, mm-hmm. basically what what the Wehrmacht and the Luftwaffe have been doing um Every battle in World War II, given the opportunity to do that up until that point. And so what um, Allied Air was trying to do was prevent them from doing that, preventing yep. them from being in a position to secure that. And so what I, what I did in that particular case to set up the WINGS event was I, w- I needed to have some additional follow-on consequences, and I didn't want mm-hmm. to just provide air observers to the players, because they can be quite hit or miss you know, there's yep. a one in six chance you'll get a rookie pilot. They might not just come in, they got shut down by AA. And that in and of itself, I think, wasn't really what I was trying to achieve. I wasn't trying to achieve free units. A little bit here and there is not an issue, yep. um, but I wanted that to be sort of a rare case. And so what I did was I set up two airfields mm-hmm. um, and it was basically a, a 3v3 dogfight over two airfields. The Allied, the Allied intent was to destroy the two airfields uh, and then leave. Um, and the Axis players were scrambled to defend the airfields. Uh, And so that's a a pretty common air superiority thing. You'll go in and you'll try to tag fighters that are still on the ground because they're extremely vulnerable. And when you're crippling an airfield, you don't actually have to destroy it. You can just damage the runway enough. And so even in that case, 100, 250-pound bombs that any fighter can carry would be sufficient for Mm -hmm. that task. Because if you don't have a level level, uh, flying field, you're not going to be able to take off, off, especially in a World War II fighter plane. And so um, to sort of capture uh, who had sort of initiative in Elan, what I did was I got the Axis players to set up across their board edge. And then once they had set up, then I allowed the allied players. So that was mm-hmm. the idea that um, the allied players were coming in for a specific assault on an airfield, mm-hmm. and, but the German players or the Axis players didn't know what that was. Yeah. And so they were just scrambled from any airfield in the nearby region to get, to get up and get going. Uh, so I think in the, in the actual air battle, there was a couple of air bases that were destroyed, but their primarily thing was to just ground the Luftwaffe as much as they can in, in <laughs> localized pockets and prevent them from being able to achieve superiority. So what we did was we got a mix of planes. We got one player on each side was given a late war um, plane. Yep. So in the case of the Allies, it was a P-51D Mustang. In the case of, yeah, <laughs> everybody loves that pony. Um, and in the and case it, uh, of the Axis, it was a Focke-Wulf 190D. Uh, yeah. The Allies were given uh, supporting spins. Spitfires, and so Mark yeah. 1s. Yeah. So, you know, rifle caliber, machine guns, on the 20 mils. And the um, German players were ke- given BF-109Ks. They, so they were E-1s. BF-109 E-1s. And so the idea was um, to sort of represent... Yeah, at that point, it would have been all late war. Uh, but yeah. we sort of didn't have enough planes. We had a couple of new players. Yeah. And the late war planes can be quite lethal because they're so fast <laughs> yeah. and so yeah. maneuverable. Yeah. Uh so we had we actually did end up having a couple of new players on the day. One of them was, was, was riding the pony, I think. Uh do you remember who the um Wolf pilot was? Ooh.
1: Um I'm trying to think. Gee. Yeah. Sorry so, mate. No, that that's fine. <laughs> yeah, I was just
2: wondering if you had a new player in the backseat of that one. And what I think it was Josh. No, I think Josh was flying. As a bit no, he, uh, he, yeah. was, he was on the allies, right? Yeah, yeah. so we had, the, we had two new players in the allied side uh, and myself filling in the gap, and we had one new player on the Axis side. Yeah. And so the, the dogfight went quite interestingly. What I would have expected was that the two late-war players would get into a duel yeah, um, they kind of ignored each other. <laughs> yeah, um, would get into a duel because they would be able to outpace and outrun and outgun the other fighter craft. And what ended happening was we got a we had a small death ball forming, which is a very tactical, yep. very technical term. Um, as a death ball uh, forming over one of the airfields, yeah. and John, who was flying the pony, just sort of was like, "Well, I've gotten the 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 other." Uh, fighter plane he's out he can't catch up with me so he just dipped out of the fight and just strafed the <laughs> yeah. airfield several yeah. times and then just gunned it out of there yeah. Yeah. um and that that was so we didn't have altitude but it sort of represents the energy, energy fighting tactics that the mustang was known for it yeah. had a great climb rate mm-hmm. uh, and it would climb up and you would bank kinetic energy you'd trade altitude for speed yep. and yeah. then you would just zoom past everybody and you'd get them to chase you and then hopefully you turn around and get them chase you in an allied formation. John didn't need to do that. He yeah. just gunned it for the <laughs> other. <air laughs> he just gunned it for the other <laughs> airfield, strafed that one with more or less impunity because um, everybody had only just wrangled themselves out of the death ball. <laughs> one Spitfire was down. one 109 was was splashed, uh, and at this point, you know, you had one two planes up from each side. Pretty much everybody was smoking and limping yeah. at this point. I think, I think maybe the Falkwolf 190 only had a sminered like, paint yeah. scratch on it. And then we were... That at was the... Nick playing it. Right, yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 Um, And so we had to actually had two new players on the late yeah. war planes, which is what yeah. I had tried yeah. to avoid. <laughs> <laughs> but I think in hindsight, it probably would have been worse if we got the more capable players yeah. Yeah. So so up. Yeah. They would have just... Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh! yeah. <laughs> and Absolutely them. run, right, uh, run uh, rings around everybody. Mm. So... At that point, um, the Luftwaffe was completely grounded, completely crippled. And the consequences were that for every two planes that left the engagement, it was one allied observer for that side. So two Axis players is one free observer, two allied planes is one free observer for the Allies. And at this point, they all... They all just sort of clocked each other, and everybody realized that they were mostly damaged, yeah. <laughs> and everybody just sort of disengaged. Yeah. Which actually, was that's that's pretty yeah. that's and that's pretty accurate. Yeah, because there was nothing really left to fight over at this point, yeah. and everybody was like, well. A plane, uh, a returned pilot is always worth more than than down. Than a down, than one, a down one. one, yeah, yeah. And, for they, sure. and they all realized that the engagement was over, and they all just peeled off. <laughs> there was there was a few like attempts at you know you'd you'd hit your war emergency power button and you'd try to chase down a Spitfire or the Mustang, yeah, but yeah. but they were just at the right angle where everybody was able to disengage, and yeah. I thought that was that was really cool, yeah. Because that's they great. what you typically see in Wings of Glory is that people will just fight to the death, yep, but because. Um, Uh, Nick was was actually one of the Axis commanders for Varsity as well. Uh, One of the ground commanders. And they all just sort of went, well, it's actually worth more to the uh, campaign outcomes, quote-unquote, the war effort, if I come back alive. And that was really great to see that the players make that decision. Because they could have all gone, no, we want to prevent the opponents from having... Uh, allied, air, uh, yeah.
0: allied air observers and they may have found themselves shot down <laughs>
2: exactly and yeah. the, the risk was too great for them so they all just made this calculated decision so, to bug out so that's that, really
1: cool so so what happened in the end we got two access planes off board and two allied planes off board
0: yeah yeah so we got a free a free air free observer, air observer from both sides okay. so it's not it's going to be go. ad- balanced there we yeah. go <laughs> fantastic and
2: it's going to be additional so if you've purchased one in your list uh, yeah. you basically ignore the fact that this one exists until you rock up on the day. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: is is this going to be um, given to each player or is this no, going to be side. yeah one per side, per side yeah. and they just make the decision there and then who gets it. Yeah. yeah. So
2: if they if they uh, they will follow the deployment rules of whichever commander they get. Yeah. Um, yeah, get assigned to. So yeah. if they're assigned to get paratroop commander, then the air observer is going to have to paratroop in. Okay. Uh, and that was a that <laughs> yeah. was a thing that they did at Varsity for yeah. the first Can, time. Can't talk oh, Hold wow. parachute. Yeah, um, they actually got uh, allied air observers and forward <laughs> artillery observers actually in the paratrooper units, wow. which they didn't do before. Yeah, um, And so that it was really it's really cool to see that come through as well. Uh, what it actually means for the Axis defenders, though, is considerably worse. So <laughs> they had a they knew that an invasion was coming. historically, Mm -hmm. and so they were actually quite in a position to do a lot of repositioning. Uh, And with one air, what I had originally planned was that they wouldn't deploy units, they deployed tokens, and when they were revealed using line of sight and and a certain distance, then the Axis player controlling that token could decide which unit was actually there to sort of represent
0: them being in a rapid reserve defensible position. So put essentially... Be able to put the units they wanted and needed in the spot where they needed to go. Yeah. Yeah. And
2: so that would actually be quite powerful for a defender. Oh yeah. yeah. Um but with one 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 airfield gone, that's no longer the case. So right. you can't do that. Now the second airfield um was the resupply airfield, which was the one that contained all the ammo in the fuel fuel stores. So now there's a um, there's a chance that any time a team weapon, including an LMG team embedded into a squad, oh. uh, a tank a, uh Or an artillery piece, or mortar, snipers, flamethrowers, everything, MMG team, every time they shoot, there's a chance on a five or a six, they will pin themselves. So you roll the hit, (laughs) you roll the hit, and if you miss, you then roll to see if you add a pin to yourself. To sort of represent them going, I've just wasted the shot because I didn't hit my target, and I know
0: that I'm not getting a resupply. Sort of represent that sort of stress and the morale burden that exists. So so do you mean. if they completely whiff their shots. Correct, completely yeah. so, whiff. So MMG if they with five shots, for example, if they roll one miss, they're okay. If yep. they roll five misses, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. whoops. Yeah. Okay. Okay.
2: Because a lot of those weapons, with particularly with an MMG, you're not, I'm talking about a troop on the ground, yeah. you're not looking to see if you've hit somebody, you're just putting everybody's heads yeah. down in that area. yeah. And so to represent a complete miss is that, you know, he's shooting cover that nobody's behind, and he sort of didn't get the memo on something Yeah, like that. better he's than shooting there. the sky, which is where I was going <laughs> to Yeah, and so that's what I was trying to capture there. And it's to sort of represent tank rounds um, missing completely. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's a... Particularly tanks are really annoying to resupply in the first place, and then yeah. knowing you're not getting a resupply. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to represent that in the pin mechanic somehow. Um, so it's mm. actually, like, when you think about it, it's a quite low chance to pin. Yeah, um, yeah. But it is also if you get a complete miss on any gun. So if you have a tank that's shooting at yeah. three different targets and one of those guns completely misses, that's a yeah. pin. That's yeah. a potential transfer. Yeah. That, that can be Ooh.
1: strong, but, but it's not a down or anything
2: like that. Yeah, so yeah. like, it's not crazy. It's, it can yeah. be clear, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so it's yeah. And again, I didn't want to make it the deciding factor. You know, no. you've got a thirty-three percent chance when you miss to get a pin. And then, is, so, it, is it a one-time only thing? Or no, every time you miss, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. because <laughs> you're There's still evil. you're still wasting ammo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, And so that was that was what I was trying to convey there mm-hmm. um, is is to get that across. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, SMGs and ARs aren't affected, yeah. um, particularly because SMGs. We're using 9 millimeter Parabellum, which is a yeah, different yeah, round. Right. And um, the ARs are using 8 millimeter Curves, which is, again, a different round. Yep. Whereas all the machine guns are using the rifle caliber ammunition. Mm. Um, the tank rounds are expensive and few and far between, and you've got nobody to resupply you. So I really wanted to capture that it's like, yeah, this is end of the war. You're out of ammo. You've got nobody coming to help you. You've got to hold the line.
0: Got and, your bayonet, right? <laughs> and I think I
2: think that's not a position Axis players are typically pictured in. No, yeah. it's not no. the romantic. Yeah, picture we, of we've Beyonce's. got everything. We got the latest stuff. Come at us. We're, yeah. We're,
1: we're outmanned, yeah. but we've got plenty of firearms. And it's yeah. and it's
2: really interesting because that is a, a very pervasive myth about the Wehrmacht. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, yeah. it,
0: it's very propagandized. It, yeah, it yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
2: There's been some recent videos by some fantastic content creators talking about how everybody's perception about the Nazi war machine yeah. is actually the exact picture they were trying to spread with their propaganda yep. Yep. highly mechanized highly yep. armored highly well trained and yep. that was you know not even a percent uh, or you know wouldn't have been a quarter yep. of the the army yep there was a really interesting statistic coming into battle of poland there was ten thousand panzers and two and a half thousand half tracks for the same army And then, but all of the propaganda footage you see of the Wehrmacht is that everybody's in a half track. You're like, no, you've got four Panzers for every half track, which is which is absurd. Like when you think about sort of the image around the half track. Yeah, Yeah.
1: Uh, unfortunately, it's a propaganda that's um, pushed even further post-war because it it is anti-Soviet. Yeah, Um, and. Also, to show how great America is at the Nazi war machine that they destroyed, right? It's, it's actually
2: got more to do with the fact that all of the war footage yep. is propaganda footage. Yes. So the thing yes. a lot of people don't realize yep. is that all of the video footage that was captured during World War II is not genuine footage. Yeah. Because cameras are, were horrendously expensive, horrendously rare, and extremely unreliable. And so what you were always filming was a staged encounter every time, which is why you see every single, you know, after all the propaganda footage after 42, every single German soldier with a machine gun has an MG42, when in reality, the the vast majority of them were still equipped with the 34. 34. And, you know, everybody's in a half track when the vast majority of them were moved by mules and horses and and blitzes and... Yeah, that all of that is exactly the image that the, the Nazi war machine was trying to create. And you see it in every documentary that you see yeah. that uses archival footage. The only footage they have is propaganda footage. Yeah. And because people want explosions and guns and tanks in their documentaries, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. that's the yeah. only footage yeah. you can use. Yeah. And the Allied footage isn't much better, of course. Yeah. No, I was, gonna, I was actually going to comment yeah.
0: that um, the, the Soviets have some very, very famous... Uh, yeah interactions with their their stuff but a lot of it is stage propaganda shots um it, it has to be and and yeah, the yeah. figures that were attached to some of those things um yeah i, I re- remember reading an article once um and and, and essentially, essentially the whole article that put through is like these are some of the classic images but they're all stage because there's no way knowing that they would have put yeah. this person near a camera, near a anti-tank gun that was in this trench that was going to be shooting there's over there. A, yeah. It's like they just yeah. don't go that there, close. There's yeah. a
1: very famous one that, that you should try and have a look at. And when you look at Battle of Britain footage, there is Soviet footage of them with the flag bearer who's putting it on the Reichstag. That's all filmed the following day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, but, you know, they're, they're showing this heroic charge through fire and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah.
2: Because <laughs> yeah. uh, the same was the Iwo Jima shot. Iwo Jima right? is yeah. the same. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. Which, which, you know, again, both done for reasons, both under war propaganda. Yeah, yeah If it's yeah. not disagreeing or agreeing with any yeah. of that space, yeah. that's yeah. just the yeah. reality of what happened. You and generally, when you're being shot at, didn't have a chance <laughs> to raise a flag.
2: But it's an important yeah. thing to remember that it's just to apply that little bit of critical thinking yes. when you see yeah. those yes. things, right? Yeah. And, but but that's the real uh, danger about the war propaganda uh, of that time yeah. because this is, you know, this is the only video footage that we have yeah. and it's really easy to forget that it's all staged. Mm-hmm. Even a lot of the, like the only thing you can really find is aerial reconnaissance footage that are genuine. Yeah. A lot of them are yeah. now coming out. You can get access mm-hmm. to them. But, you know... Th- those camera- yeah. I, I, I looked at a couple when we were setting up our Battle of Britain event for Wings, uh, yeah. I think a couple of years ago now. You know, I, I found one of the genuine ones completely digitized, and it was 48 kilobytes. It yeah. was like a yeah. 400 by 400 pixel image. And I yeah. was like, this was the sort of the high-tech aerial reconnaissance of London at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and so when you see this like war footage, you have to remember that cameras were extremely rare and expensive yeah. equipment yep. at the time. And you're going to try to sell an image. You're mm. not you're not going to yeah. sell the truth. You're going to try yeah, to sell yeah. an image. Yeah.
1: Um, if anyone is interested, Warlord does have metal figures with the propaganda sh- shooting oh, wow. with okay. the cameras and that kind of stuff. Yep. So you could, Pretty sure I've you got could one. stage Pretty sure um, I got one of propaganda can stage a battle, course. which is what we all do with our cameras anyway. Yeah. Making these, uh,
0: you know, these great, these battles look even more fantastic than they the, might be. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the, the propaganda rules are actually quite interesting as well in some of the, um, the campaign books and stuff, but we'll leave that for another episode. Yeah. So, um, um, we're.
1: We've done two pre-games to the main Varsity event. Yep, yep. We've talked about the effects that the wings has on um, both the allies and the Axis for the event. Yep. Um, just a very quick recap. What is the change for Firefight with the
2: allies yeah, the successfully
1: yep. blowing up the bridge? Or yeah, so it?
2: that was the, the Axis destroyed the bridge. Yep. Um, and the Axis also prevented the allies from destroying um, Asparagus Zone. So Glider's got to land through Rommel's Asparagus. Uh, they also prevented the allied uh, Pathfinders from placing a Eureka beacon, so the paratroopers yep. are going to have a field day trying to get organized. And the the final thing was the allies were able to capture um, some high-ranking Intel. officers. Yeah. yeah, so the the allied players will get sort of a, a stylized... Um, breakdown of the lists and their deployments and yep. they're not going to get yep. go down to point yep. costs and units yep. but they'll get a they'll get a rough overview yep. sort of the the kind of intelligence report you yep. would get like if yeah like 13th revealed. division here or something, something like, like that, that. Yeah. 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 yeah
0: or maybe yeah. Um, you know um, expected heavy armour presence yeah yeah you
1: know, fantastic it's a general
0: indication um, Looking forward to it. Yeah, so excited. Yeah,
1: so that's going to be yeah. on the
2: 13th of September. Um, we've got yep. our players locked in for the day. Spectators yep. are absolutely welcome and yep. invited. The players pack is up on the Facebook event. If people want to have a look and see what they have to live with, um, being a commander <laughs> on that day. Uh, yeah, it's going to be. I think it's going to be an 11 or 12 o'clock start. Yeah, uh, and it's. It, we expect it's probably going to be a pretty full on day. Yeah. Um, there's there's a whole bunch of special rules at play, not just the ones that we've talked about these consequences, yep. but also some things to keep the game flowing mm-hmm. the game that... So
1: we've talked about the combined board, the effects of the game, um, and we're ready for the event. Yeah,
2: we're all set to go. Uh, So it's going to be a 3v3 um, Bolt action game on a 12 by 4 board. Fantastic. Um, So it's going to be a lot of fun. Looking forward to it. So, so keen. I'll
1: put on some video footage of, of what the board looks like. You would have seen it in a couple of our episodes before. But we might move on to our strategy and tactics for Bolt.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so we're gonna follow up uh, this section um, on last episodes, which was about the angles of attack uh, where we talked about a perpendicular punch to the face, um, quick and direct, efficient. Um, but this episode, we're actually gonna talk about an oblique angle of attack. So this is where um, classically, that's, that's a diagonal uh, route of attack. Um, this is m- mostly a direct route to engage with your enemy, uh, your opposition. Um, But it does take a little bit longer to engage. Now, so that could be because you have to work your way around terrain uh, or you might have, in order to get to your target unit, there's another unit in the way that you want to move around. Um, You generally have to successfully aim your unit that you want to do the engaging on that angle of attack to to bear down on it. So, um, Which makes sense, right? Because you can't take a unit that's on the left flank and go, oh, I actually want to attack on the right flank. Let me just teleport that. (laughs) Okay, now we're in the right space. So it does take a little bit of positioning to get that. Um, generally aimed up um, and if you are trying to attack something from your left flank on your right flank um, don't that <laughs> choose, a, choose a different target for that unit because it's going to take you too long or play in a sphere or play in a sphere yeah you know um, yeah just go the other way um, <laughs> 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 did you know that the left side of the board is actually linked to the right side of the board oh, do, 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 mate do, do. you're changing um, there, there's all the gonna
2: tactics be, I've known <laughs> there's going to be
0: a fun mission design coming oh yeah, yeah. I can, you can <laughs> tell it right you can tell um, but but essentially uh, whilst it takes a little bit longer, um, that's the space where you start to move around cover bonuses that the units are in um, to, it's that's the classic engagement to remove arc of fire for a fixed weapon uh, weapon system to get around that it's Bleak Angle of Attack is also really good um, to guide your opponent to do something, mm-hmm. so um, say that they have run forward a Tiger tank that you're trying to stay away from and engage, you can use an, an oblique approach to try and pull that tiger away mm-hmm. from something. So yeah. you can sort of, um, it's a little bit baiting, but you sort of, you do it with the unit you want to engage. But, um, but you, you're trying to, you have to do it from the side which you want to draw the tank away from or the unit away yeah. from. And, yeah. and so it's, again, a little bit of putting that pressure in place to, to get it done. Um, but you'll often be able to catch your opponent by surprise if you've actually aimed it just right, and then all of a sudden you actually deliver your offensive with the units that you wanted to on the other flank. So again, a lot of this requires a little bit of thought to actually have it all come together as one battle plan because every every unit you've got to go through and figure out what the best angle of attack is based on the target that it needs to deal with. But within your left flank, centre, and right flank, you've got to figure out overall... What angle do I want that to hit on my mm-hmm. opponent to then follow that through and actually, you know, either break that flank or just hold it in place? Um, so you do have to think about it a little bit in that space, but um, largely you do it for cover. Like mm-hmm. it's the difference. Yeah. It's the difference between you've got hard cover behind that wall because you most of your defenders are up against or behind that wall. If I come at you from a bleak angle, I might be able to get four or five of my models past the wall, and if that's fifty yeah. percent. The, the rules favor attack. the shooter. You drop the modifier. Um, as much as <laughs> that obviously causes a lot of contention sometimes, but yeah. the rules in that scenario do actually favor the shooter, not the defender. And yeah. if you are fifty mm-hmm. percent or um, or more of the models that are actually doing the shooting, um, then you can ignore the cover. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Which which you know some people I, I get it. I get, yeah. get frustrated, yeah. but it keeps it simple. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so that's largely the the, the angle of attack. Would you consider an outflank, an oblique? It can be. So outflank, because it gives you that ability to start on the side, um, it's much more in line with used for parallel attack. Yeah, Because okay. you, you're yeah. Straight, yeah. straight away okay. yeah. on that, on that uh, line. Um, but it can be used for an oblique attack. It's actually... So that actually ties in with when you use outflank as well. So so if mm-hmm. you're on turn three straight away and you go to bring something on from outflank, you're probably going to do an oblique attack because yeah. what you're targeting is probably already set a turn behind. Mm-hmm. If you're turn four or five, possibly six, um, that's when you're starting mm-hmm. to look at parallel. Yeah. Um, now, if you take the diagonal for oblique and you flip it over, yeah. you have a re- oblique, but from the reverse arc, so that just becomes a rearward attack yeah, at yeah. that point. Yeah, um, yeah. And rearward attack, uh, it, it's technically not an angle of attack you would normally strategize around because it's opportunistic. Sure. Yeah, Because um, yeah. yeah. uh, even, even with an outflanking unit, if you get a chance to come on behind something um, because your opponent rolled forward, knowing you had something get outflank, they've created that opportunity for you to exploit as opposed to you yeah. being able to go, my unit simply allows me to attack you from behind. Unless you're finished. Unless you're finished. <laughs> <laughs> Which, um, you know, they're well known, obviously, for their Carcapatio their, um, uh, units to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a very unique ability. Um, yeah. But but they they can do whatever angle they want. Nothing of flames <laughs> or a team on ambush can't fix. Oh, look, <laughs> look, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, I've, I've read a few battle reports. I've seen games. I've yep. played games where, um, you know, I think I've got my ambushes or my, my things ready to set up, but I need his dice to come out first, and it's yeah, mine. Yeah, and yeah, I'm like, definitely. I don't want it. <laughs> 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 but you put them on ambush, and it's a little bit better. But uh, um, even when they're on, yeah, they're, they're just a really nice unit. They, they do something very, very cool uh, in, in the space of what they do. Um, But yeah, so the oblique attack is sort of, it's the in-between of, it's the pressure, but with a little bit of time, but it's also then you're starting to get more benefits from an actual rules mechanic point of view, because you're ignoring the cover, you're opening up the opponent. um, Because the other thing is like, once you're opening up the, and you're reducing the cover modifier, the chances of them going down to reduce damage is actually significantly higher as well. Mm, So you start forcing the dice that way, um, but it is knowing what to do it with.
1: This seems to be probably the um, default method for me to maneuver forces. Yep. Um, not direct mm-hmm. going around terrain and hoping to get some angles on them out of cover. Yep. Where would you see this would be useful for maneuvering but not actually attacking infantry? Or,
0: or or an or an opponent. So so the angle, I guess, it's a li- it's a little bit in the name. So these these yeah. specific yeah. examples of, as yeah. of angles of attack, yeah. Yeah. Um, these aren't uh, these aren't simply just manoeuvring. So it does yeah. require that you have a target that you're lining yeah. up for, yeah. um, and it does require you to have the capability to deal with that target. And so it's about you know if your early game turns yeah. turns one to three sort of space, um, beginning of three. You can you can sort of play along with an oblique attack or a parallel attack because you to have lead the time into, to yeah. lead into getting yeah. those right angles. Um, and I should reference as well that the um, the actual angle itself is based on the edges of the longboard edge, yeah. It'll be your player yeah. edge, right? Yeah. So that's always the essentially the root yeah. um, that you that you attach to to determine what angle you're coming from. Um, when it comes to uh, you know. If, if there's no target there, then you're just moving. And, yeah. it's, and then it becomes more about why you're moving there and yeah. and what's the most efficient way to move there. If that's with a run order and yeah. zigzagging around stuff, then that's what you do. Yeah. Um, if it's needing the cover so you don't get shot to pieces, then you mm-hmm. go leapfrog through the cover. Um, but in this case, it's very much yeah, yeah. an attack. So buildings are actually a quite interesting one when it comes to an oblique attack. Mm-hmm. Um, you actually do not want to oblique attack a building. hmm because if you spread your unit in two faces of that building, you open yourself up to more shots. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you actually, you very much want to be um, either a parallel or a perpendicular attack, essentially squared off with the building's facings. Um, oblique attacks get men killed uh, <laughs> in that sense, because the, the building facings essentially have a 180 degree fire yeah. Um, yeah 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 and so, so there's an overlap there's an you know, overlap at every corner yep yeah. mm-hmm. and so at every corner when you've got that overlap and if you're coming in on that diagonal you just happen to get blindsided by, by like what would normally be maybe five facing. models worth of shooting yeah, sure. you're suddenly looking at the full units worth of shooting or um, it might be a team and a unit yeah or know, it could yeah. be a flamethrower yeah um, <laughs> <laughs> like, like there's the yeah you just understanding the best way to... I mean, if you have to, you have to, right? Like the, yeah. thats yeah. There's the thing... This, these are only the guidelines, like, when you actually go to play the game. Or why that to do determined. things. Yeah. 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 But, but in reality, um, yeah, you, you want to avoid it if you can.
2: One of the things that I found really useful about about oblique attacks, specifically I tend to, they become most evident when I outflank because I will do it Mm -hmm. in turn three from a transport, Mm -hmm. typically, um, is that it will turn a perpendicular attack into an oblique attack. And so what you're doing is it's like, yeah, I hear what you're saying about the board edge, but it's also if you mentally draw um, an area of control with like a dashed line around your opponent's units, you'll find salience, little pockets that I've pushed out, little pockets that I've pushed in. If you can hit one of those with an oblique attack, you will force the army to turn. Yes. And mm-hmm. so, when you can do that, a perpendicular attack becomes two oblique attacks. Yes. And that's always something that you're going to try and do because mm-hmm. if if he's got a pushed out salient and there's a little pocket yeah. of defenders, you can very easily outmaneuver it and just leave it there. Um, and I think a lot of people get caught up in uh bleak attack. I must attack the thing that sticks out. Yes. But yeah, it, yeah, it's it's like chess. If you move one of those pawns forward, you can take the pawn or you can move through the gap that he's opened. Mm. And that's typically what I find myself doing specifically with my outflankers. Yeah. Is I yeah. will literally just circumvent the infantry that's pushed forward and I'm taking out either an objective or a key piece of equipment in the backlight or something like that. Yeah, and, absolutely. Then, and then you've got... Uh, In my case, it's, you know, five or six-man squad, flamethrower team, veteran, transport with an MMG, parked right in their backfield. And then if they don't turn to slow it down, I'm I'm in exploit territory. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Do you
1: map territory like that in your head?
2: Yep. So, so, so I, you,
1: you see the blue and red lines. Yep. Yeah. And okay.
2: And so uh, before before I start the game... Not visually, but, you know, yeah. like... Yeah, Please you know, tell us if you do yeah. it in an event. Because
1: <laughs> we might need to call someone. Because I want someone. your glasses,
2: <laughs> made, like. yeah, if, if I start twitching, yeah. <laughs> Come grab me. Um, no. gorgeous, so the lines, the lines. <laughs> and so uh, before I start the game, um, during yeah. setup, I will perform oak oak. It's, yeah. a, it's a military acronym about observations of angles, key objectives, um, yeah. a, area terrain, uh, angles of attack. So you're not forming a battle plan. You're yeah. just going, is that building important? What can it see? What are its yeah. fields of fire? Yeah. How about that hill? How about this road? What are the vectors of attack? What yeah. are mm-hmm. the angles? And I will map them out in my head. Yeah. Um, once you've done that a couple of times, if you've played... Company that of Heroes way. a fair bit, yeah. or if you've played Steel Division, any one of these RTSs, if you've played StarCraft, that becomes really apparent. It's something you will do naturally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, obviously those games have set maps, and so the Oak Oak analysis becomes community, becomes yeah. open source, effective. Everybody yeah. does it, the strategies for each map. When it, when it comes to that, uh, applying it to a bolt-action game, having that skill set uh, of analyzing it, it really helps. And so, you know, sometimes I'll be down at the table looking at where the angles of fire are if I park a mm-hmm. unit on that hill, a unit on that hill. Then the second thing that I will do is as the game's developing, is I will draw, like mentally, I will circle yeah. units and I will have like areas of influences. And I will mm-hmm. have sort of yeah. a couple of spheres or a couple of like zones. One of them will be movement potential. One of them is, is, is ranged potential. Yeah. And then another one is charge potential. And so they will all sort of map over each other. And it's not like, you know, I'm not sitting there drawing it out every time. Um, And it's one of those things that I'm not spending a lot of effort doing it. I'm not trying to do it in massive detail um, unless I'm, once I'm sort of getting closer to making a decision, Yeah. if you talk about um, observe, orient, decide, act, it's part of my orient step. Um, So I'll observe a movement and then when I'm orienting, I'll be like, okay, what sort of these influence zones
1: has that movement changed? Yeah. yeah. Has
2: where have those lines shifted? Yeah. yeah. And uh, I will try to identify weaknesses in the line by mm. basically distance between two units and their yes. impacts. Yeah. And yeah. so that you know, I, I have driven transports between two infantry squads and parked them right on top of an enemy team before, and you know, there might have only been six inches between two infantry squads, but now in my head there's a blue line that stretches to my infantry
0: yeah transport. yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's quite interesting when, when Gorchin. um, I don't always tell these guys the bits and pieces I'm thinking on or writing on (laughs) before we do it. Um, but several times now I've gone and talked about something and then Gorchin goes, yeah, it's like this and starts relating to like real (laughs) military concepts that are (laughs) are basically what I'm talking about. But, um, I, I very much do the same thing with, with, with opponent units and my units. Um, and I imagine spheres of influence essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, and those spheres of influence, uh, they flag for the different targets that might be nearby to them as well. So, and, and so by that, I get a very high level gauge of how much of a threat is Is that that unit onto my flank? Like, um, I know the other thing (laughs) being a sacrificial warlord that I am, (laughs) um, (laughs) I know that with, with a lot of my, um, like my Soviet armies that I've played in, in history, I generally have that free squad as an extra unit to utilize. And so, if the threat is on a flank with my free squad, I almost don't care because yeah, I, yeah, I, know, I know that I'm a unit up yeah. in that space. Yeah, But sometimes, you know, just the threat of, uh, okay, I know that there's two machine guns in that squad and I know that there's a machine gun team next to that squad. That's actually 15 shots a turn. If I only put one unit forward, not only will they potentially take two pins, I'm going to lose maybe four or five guys if I'm yeah. not in cover. Yeah. You know, that's a big deal. And it, But it's it's just assessing those those. Yeah, those influences and interactions. And I do the same thing. I spot for where do I think, looking at the board and where, where my resources are, where are the places I think I can put pressure on the line and break it? Yeah. And sometimes what happens um, is those things open up very quickly with like a howards strike yep. or a mortar strike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and All of a sudden you create a gap and you go, there, that's, that's where I'm going to put the pressure. Yeah. Um, even if it means that what well, they previously were going to kill this turn, they don't kill. Yep. They, they, yeah. they run to the hole because maneuvering is more important, yeah. more important right yeah. like like the uh, and it happens with me all the time when my opponents put pressure on me I make mistakes yeah. and yeah. it goes it, and what you want yeah. is for your opponent to be in that space not you yeah um, mm. Mm. Um, so I think that probably wraps up uh, episode 7 I think now yeah, uh, yeah. with where we're at and yep. we're going to run into for the 13th of September move towards running into Varsity very very yeah, soon yeah fantastic um, we've got lots of other things I think that we're still planning under the hood yeah, for the moment that we'll uh, we'll keep under wraps um,
1: yeah so be sure to check in with us next time we're going to be talking all about the main Varsity event um, and then a few other things that we've got in the pipeline for Perth Bolt Action specifically yep. there's quite a bit happening in yeah. the next few months yeah um, so, uh, thanks for checking in. This is the historical miniature, all gamers.
2: Thanks everyone. See ya.